acting as a witness of God's word. Now, for those of you that have been in church for a long time, maybe you've heard this quoted, maybe you haven't. It's a short letter. Uh, many believe that because of the amount of words that it would have fit on their common size stationery in those days. It would have been like a one-page letter. They didn't have eight and a half by 11. It was like slightly smaller. It was like eight by 10. But these were like, you know, from the desk of, you know, that type of stationery that you've seen on people's desks. And John the Apostle had a heart for the people that he had interacted with throughout his life. And so the letter of 3 John, the theme is truth. I love this because John is known as the apostle whom Jesus loved or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He calls himself that at the end of the book of John, the, the gospel of John. So this letter was written by the apostle John, and it was written to a young man by the name of Gaius. Now, I say young man because at this time, John is in his 90s. He, he actually, many believe, wrote this after he wrote the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which we will be in in just a couple weeks which is scary and exciting all at the same time. I don't know how many of you have heard the book of Revelation taught before. Um, I've heard it a couple of times, and I'm excited to teach it through for the first time. So that said, um, John writes in 1 John, his first letter, to all believers, that their joy may be full. And we went over that over and over again, the reasons that he was writing to them so that their joy would be overflowing. In 2 John, I love this, his audience is not all believers, but he actually writes it to a single household, an elect lady and her children. And in in 3 John, he writes to one person, one church leader. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't typically write to big groups. I write to individuals because I don't see myself as that authoritative. But that said, here we see the heart of God. God cares about all people. He cares about specifically all believers and even more specifically, he cares about each and every household. And even more specifically, he cares about you as an individual. And I know this because we see him writing to one individual through the pen of John. And so as he's writing to Gaius, he has several purposes in mind. Now at this time in church history, there were itinerant prophets and evangelists that went from church to church to minister to the body of Christ. They would be representatives. They would feel called by God with a specific message, and then they would travel around and essentially play that song. They would show up and they would give this message. The Apostle John's song that he would sing, or his message, typically all centered around love one another. That was his message at the end of his life. The thing that everybody knew he was going to say as part of every one of his messages was, you should love one another as God has loved you. Love one another. And so with that in mind, uh, they went from church to church to minister to the body of believers. So in this letter, the purpose for John's writing is to deal with one man by the name of Diotrephes in the church who wouldn't receive or support any of the prophets that came in. Now, if you know anything about church, my mailbox fills up all the time with letters of people asking for money or asking to speak at the church or some other thing. They, they all have a need. Now, 
Some of them are very wonderful ministries that we already support, and some of them are just looking for a handout, and they know that we have a place to harvest money from. But that said, Diotrephes has this tendency not to receive or support any of the local itinerant evangelists that come in. So John writes to him to tell him, hey, or to tell Gaius, Diotrephes is actually walking in contrast to the gospel because we are, as leaders in the church, to be known for showing hospitality, to receive brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll get more into that. But he also wrote to commend Gaius for extending hospitality to these itinerant prophets and evangelists. So he commends Gaius for doing this thing, for showing hospitality. And he also warns Gaius that there's another man that won't receive anybody. But then he also writes to express his approval of a man who's getting ready to come to the church that Gaius is at. He says he's a traveling man and he's getting ready to come into your area and I approve of him. And many others can testify that he is a faithful servant of Jesus. So that's the purpose. So here's the question. We've got Gaius and we've got Diotrephes and we've got Demetrius along the way. Diotrephes has this tendency not to let anybody speak. Gaius has this tendency to, to support and to serve those who come. But how do we know who to serve and who not to serve? Because Diotrephes isn't necessarily wrong. In 2 John chapter, uh, verse, excuse me, 2 John verse 7 through 11, just above or to the page to the left, there's this warning where it says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They don't confess that he was both God and man in the flesh and yet full deity. And so because of that, they don't confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. These are deceivers and they are antichrist. It doesn't say they are the Antichrist. It says they are Antichrist. They are putting themselves in the place of Christ instead of Christ, and they're also anti what he's trying to do. They're not for him, so they're against him. And so that said, there are some who we are supposed to say, nope, we're not going to give you support because you don't confess the same Jesus that we do. You're not walking in the truth. You're not proclaiming the truth. You're actually a hindrance to the gospel and we don't want you to be supported. He even says towards the end, don't, don't send them on their way with greetings. He says, uh, do not receive him in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring the true doctrine, do not receive him into your house or greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. They're actually seeking their own gain. And so we need to be careful about who we support and who we do not. So that said, we do need to have discernment. We do need to have understanding of who is true and who is false, who's worthy of support and who needs to be sent away empty-handed. So in 3 John, John's going to teach them that if these workers of the faith are in the truth, they should be received, they should be supported, and they should be sent. And so how do we know which one they are? Well, if you'll turn with me to the left, to 1 John chapter 4, he's already addressed this. Remember, these three letters kind of echo the same truths to different audiences. But in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John encourages the church, do not believe every spirit, 
but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. So test the spirits. Test what spirit these traveling itinerant evangelists and prophets are of. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So there's the contrast to what he's just said in the beginning of 2 John. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. There you have it. A clear division, a distinction. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So how do we know? Do they proclaim that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? You want to know whether or not someone that comes to your door on a Saturday morning is actually the Jesus Christ that the Bible teaches? Ask them what they believe and teach about Jesus. And right there, you can know the real McCoy from a false prophet. Also, does what they teach match up with how they live? Christians, you cannot say one thing and live another way and be a true prophet. You can't be a servant of Christ and a servant of yourself. If he is Lord, he needs to be Lord of all. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. There needs to be a distinction. And that's confusing to the world when we claim to follow Christ and yet our life doesn't match up. Now, there is grace. There's a difference between sin, which is transgression, and a trespass. One is one where you're trying to hit the mark and you miss. And you're growing in your marksmanship, if you will. That's what it means, a transgression or a trespass. But there's a difference between knowing somebody's property isn't yours and going and hunting on it and going on somebody's property thinking that it's government land or whatever. There's the difference. So if you're trying to do something you know is wrong, that's sin you need to repent of right now. But if there's something that you've messed up on and one of your brothers or sisters says, hey, what's going on? Humble yourself and question. Maybe I did mess up and I had no idea there was a boundary there. And that's how we all get to grow. That's how we all get to sharpen one another as iron sharp. One, one sword sharpens another and they would take old swords and they'd rub them together, both made of the same material, but there'd be the sparks that happen. But as a result, both swords get more sharp. And that's what Proverbs says. Just as iron sharpens iron, so one brother or sister can sharpen the countenance of another. And so we need to have that humility to be able to learn. So one other way that we know of from church history they had to discern between a true and a false prophet was something called the didache. I'm probably saying it wrong because I'm from southeast Missouri and not Rome or Greek. Um, So this was a, a, a historical book that we don't have in the canon of Scripture. But if you search this word, the didache, you'll find out with several different wor- versions of it. Now, I won't claim that it is Scripture, but I will say that if you read it, it's actually kind of the teachings of Jesus Christ boiled down into like 14 or 15 chapters. And it's like real hard hitting. It's real straight to the point. If you want a boiled down version of pieces of the Bible, it's really good. But it's the Lord's teachings, uh, tradition says, that were written by the apostles for those that didn't, they didn't carry around a Bible. But in there, they had rules for whether or not to receive a prophet that comes along the way. And just to summarize a few of them, it's kind of interesting. 
If he comes and he needs a place to stay, they wouldn't normally stay in an inn because the innkeepers would be, um, they would rob you blind. They were dishonest. And so it was better to stay with someone. So if he stays less than three days, you're good. But if he kind of starts living for a long time and you don't know when he's ever going to leave, he's probably a false prophet is what they would say. And they were straightforward with that. If he orders a meal, he says, thus saith the Lord, and he prophesies that a meal is to be prepared, and he partakes of it, he's a false prophet. He's doing it for his own gain. If he prophesies that there should be a meal prepared according to the Lord, and it's for the poor or for it's somebody that has a need, then, then he's of the Lord. If he asks for money for himself, false prophet. If he asks for money that benefits someone that's not attached to him, somebody that, that's poor or in a need, then he's a true prophet. Now I look at this and it makes me wonder about some of our present day prophets. It also makes me wonder about some of the things that I've said. You know, am I a true prophet? Am I in it for my own personal gain or am I in it to proclaim the name of Christ and, and also proclaim that I trust God to provide for me? I'm not going to force the sheep to give me something. And so it's an interesting idea and, and they were very staunch on it. They would shut you down. You, you, the third day comes around and you are camping in somebody's house, they would call you out on it. And so all that to say that there were rules around who could be received and supported and who would not. So in, we'll finally get to Third John here because I just realized I haven't read any of it. How can you go verse by verse and chapter by chapter if you don't even start in verse 1? So he writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So he's saying a lot of the same thing he said in the second letter. But what I want to point out is that in verse 2, this is an oft-quoted verse out of context where people claim that God wants them to be happy and healthy and prosperous. And this is not a verse that you could apply in that way because this is a specific prayer. And I have there for you, it's a prayer for prosperity, which is not an evil prayer. And it's a prayer for physical health that's also not evil. But he's praying this that his prosperity and his physical health would actually come up to speed with his spiritual prosperity and his spiritual health. Oftentimes, we have this tendency to focus on our physical health first, right? I mean, it's the new year. I guarantee gym memberships just ramped up. I guarantee that there is more exercise equipment purchased and used in the last couple of days, and it's already dwindling because the membership started. I used to do it every year. I'd get a gym membership, January 1. I'd be all fired up because, right, you know, you, we, want it, we want a new beginning. And there's nothing wrong with physical health. Actually, what Scripture says, and Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, godliness with contentment is great gain. He says physical uh, wellness is actually beneficial, but spiritual wellness actually benefits eternally. It won't go away. You won't get flabby after a couple of days of not working out spiritually. It's, it's beautiful. And so... It, 
he prays for his physical prosperity and his physical health. But it's not a blanket promise from God for all believers. It's a prayer for a friend from his spiritual father in the faith. And I think there's nothing wrong with praying this for people we love. We want to see them do well. But even if they don't do well and they don't prosper, either financially or physically, that doesn't mean that God's blessing's not upon them. He might have been calling them to something greater. And I can tell you that in the last three months, as God has taken my job from me and I've gone full time, that I'm not making an engineer's salary. But I will tell you that God has been so stinking faithful in ways that I never needed him to be before. And I see his provision in such a clear-cut, huge way. And it's not because we're it's just amazing to see how God works. And his care for his sheep is so very real. It's not just a cliche. Um, so anyway, in verse 3 and 4, he, he continues on. He says, I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. And in verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Notice he doesn't say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children went to church with me. He doesn't say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children know the truth. He says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. And so I want to point out that he says to Gaius, you've given me as a spiritual father for you reason to rejoice. And then he says, the truth that's in you, I, it, it's noticed not just by me, but by others that are unbiased. You know how we notice to, you know, maybe you're different, but I notice things in my kids and I might be a little biased and think, man, my kids are the greatest. Look at that. You know, she just is so excited and she's singing and she's running around and she's helping her brother. And I see the, we see the best in our children, right? But to hear somebody else say that about your children to me is a gift because it's like they, they got no skin in the game. They haven't stayed up all night. They haven't changed 8 million diapers. They haven't prayed for their children not to be like them. Like I pray for my children not to be like me. I pray for them to grow way beyond me. Um, but that said, he says the truth that's in you is noticed, but it's also proven in the way that you're walking. Uh, the truth that you're trusting in daily is seen by me and by others, and I'm just so excited about it. It makes me joyful. Verse 5, he goes on to say, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Now we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So he, he commends him. He congratulates him. You're doing good. Not only are you walking in the faith, but you're benefiting others by God just inspiring you to love people like you've first been loved. He says your hospitality is exemplary, which is important because if you look at any leader in the church in 1 Timothy 3, one of the big requirements to be a leader in the church is that you are given to show hospitality, to show love to the brethren. And he says it bears witness of your love for God's people, and this is evidence of the true faith that you have in Jesus. And then verse 7 and 8, when God's people truly take care of one another, well, 
it reflects on our good shepherd who inspires it, who provides for it, his care for us. What does Psalm 23 say? It says, the Lord, he is my shepherd and I shall not be in want. If God's people are in want, it's an indictment, not against God. God provides everything that we need. If God's people are in want, it's an, actually an indictment on us, his people, his hands and feet. And so verse 7 teaches us that where God guides, he always provides. And the church does well when we trust God and not the world to provide what is needed to do his work. I love what it says there in verse 7. He says, uh, actually starting in verse 6, he says, If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well, because they went forth for his namesake. They're missionaries, uh, pastors, whoever you might see as someone sent forth by God, they're going forth in the name of God, and if they're serving him well, you do well by sending them. And I love this because we get the opportunity to support somebody in another country, like Zambia, like we do in BCA Zambia. And guess what? The fruit that is born in that ministry, even though we never set foot, say you never go there and see the people, the fruit that's born forth actually gets attributed to your account as well. Because if you give to this church, a portion of that money goes to support these orphans and widows and the people teaching them and sharing the gospel with them in Zambia. So if your feet never touch the ground there, you're going to get to heaven and be congratulated and have awards or rewards for your faithfulness that are accounted because of what's going on in Zambia. And you're going to go, I didn't go to Zambia. And, and you're going to realize at that moment, it, you didn't have to go. You sent someone. You sent someone to bear fruit there. And that fruit also goes to your account. We get rewards. Now, if you think about it, that shouldn't surprise us because every reward that we get in heaven, every crown of victory, it, you might say, I'm not doing it for rewards. I am. Because the Bible teaches that the rewards that we are given in heaven, we get to have them for a moment. And at the moment we get them, we get to throw them at the feet of Jesus and go, you did it. Here you go. And it, it glorifies him. There's praises given to his name. He gets the rewards that he deserves because everything that you do as a part of this life that brings him glory, we get rewarded for, but it's him that gave us the faith to do it. And so here we are. We therefore ought to receive such that we become fellow workers for the truth. But in verse seven, that's what I was getting to. They went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. It grieves me when I see churches and ministries getting on the radio or whatever else or, or beat feeding it down Main Street trying to get secular businesses to prop up God's cause. Now, don't get me wrong. There are Christian business owners that give to the cause of Christ, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when we go to the world to ask for funds to keep God going, it's a discredit to the God we serve who provides all that, God, that he needs. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, you know? And so that being said, um, God provides where he guides, and we don't need to take money from the world to do what God wants to do. He is able to supply above and beyond what we could ask or think. So 
I have there for a reference uh, right there, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 24. And there's a story where David and his mighty men go out and they're fighting battles and they come back and their entire town is burnt down. And so they're exhausted from fighting battles and they come back in and, and David said, we're going to go, he, he stops, he weeps because all their wives and children and all their stuff's been taken while they've been gone at battle. And, and for those that have been in the military, like to leave, you have to leave everything behind and then everything's at risk because you're not there to protect it. And so David comes back. He is upset. He is ready to go. He's he just completely broken. And, and his men even start to turn on him. And he says, we're going to. He prays, Lord, shall we go and recover all? And the Lord says, go out. You will recover all. I'm going to take care of it for you. So they head out to the battle. But in the meantime, they've just gotten back from battle. They're worn out. And there's 200 guys that are so exhausted they can't go anymore. And so David says, no big deal. You guys stay back with the stuff, and we're going to go out and fight the battle and, and recover. So they go out, and they fight their enemies. They bring back all the spoil. No one was lost. Their wives, their children are all back, brought back. And all the men that fought for it to recover it, they get back. And as these other guys have just sat back on the bench, they get a little bit uppity in themselves, and they look at them, and they go, hey, you can have your wives and children back, but you're not getting any of the spoil. And David said that is not the case. Everybody who went out and fought, you get your peace. And everybody that stayed home, you get your peace. And that's how God works. Those who send are necessary. Those who go are necessary. But we all obtain the reward. And so, maybe not physically in this life, but heavenly. So that said, verse 9. He says, I wrote to the church, Gaius, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, I come, I w when I come, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. That word prating, I had to Google it. I don't know about you guys. I don't use prating in my normal vernacular. I do use vernacular, but I still had to Google that one. But that said, he says, prating against us with malicious words. The word prating means talking nonsense. Uh, so he says there, uh, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind their, his deeds, which he does, and the uh, talking nonsense against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and he forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. So words matching up with deeds. Again, this theme in the book of, or the letter of 3 John. So John wrote a letter. So not only does Diotrephes not show hospitality as this other guy, Gaius, has been, but he also forbids anyone that wants to. This is contrary to the gospel that we believe in. John wrote a letter to Diotrephes. And the letter that John sent to Diotrephes, the Apostle John, walk with Jesus. He writes a letter to me. I'm going to show people. Hey, John wrote me a letter. Here's what it says. You guys want to see it? I'm going to share it on Facebook. I'm be like, hey, the Apostle John wrote me. And I want to tell everybody. I'm going to name drop, okay? Diotrephes doesn't want anybody know, to know that John wrote him. Diotrephes doesn't want to share it with the church. Why? Well, he also wouldn't receive the itinerant prophets, the brethren. He wouldn't support them, let alone send them out and be... He wouldn't let them speak in his church. 
and anybody else that wanted to do it. He wouldn't let them. And if they did it, he'd kick them out of the church for showing hospitality. Why? It says there, Diotrephes, who loves the preeminence among them, he doesn't want to be under anyone else's authority. He prefers to be in charge rather than be a servant. And John says very clearly in verse 10, if I get to come, I will expose him for his deeds. I will expose him for his rejecting of anyone else's authority. And I love this because in verse 11, we see, therefore, he says, beloved, he says, take notice of diatrophies. That's what he's saying. Do not imitate what is evil. You ever been called evil by somebody? That's kind of like spitting in somebody's face. You're evil. You're not just bad. You're not just missing the mark. You're just plain out evil. Who else wanted the preeminence in, in, in the history of the Bible? Uh, a guy by the name, uh, uh, an angel by the name of Lucifer, the luminous one. He was a worship leader. He said, and in Isaiah, he actually says, I will obtain. I will become like God. I will have the preeminence. This is the spirit of anti-Christ. This is someone that seeks his own gain, his own benefit, at the expense of listening to someone that loves him. I don't know that the Apostle John wrote every person in the world a letter, but if he took the time to write a letter, at least read it and, and share it with the church. And so he's, he wants the preeminence. He wants to be first. In James chapter 3, It says this, James chapter, oh, wrong way, after Hebrews. James chapter 3, verse 16. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are present. Confusion and every evil thing are present where self-seeking exists. So he's seeking his own. He wants to have preeminence. Now, we could all be very hard on diatrophies, and we probably should because John was, and we can just roll with it. But let's not make this about diatrophies. Let's take a moment and think, what or who do I give preeminence in my life in place of Jesus? With diatrophies, he gave preeminence to who? King Diotrephes. He gave preeminence. He gave the, the final say. He gave authority really full authority to a diatrophies to decide who gets to do what and say what and think what. He became a megalomaniac. And yet in the meantime, we can very easily do that and not even realize it. So what tradition, what human being am I allowing? What am I letting myself be Lord instead of Jesus? Uh, this is a question we need to ask ourselves because we can very easily prefer preeminence over being under the authority of the one authority that we should give to. So that said, verse 12, we go on. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. So he says, look at, look at Demetrius, Gaius. He's well spoken of amongst the brethren. His walk measures up to his talk. If you need any more recommendation, oh, by the way, he's approved in my eyes. He doesn't quote himself first. He talks about the testimony of others. So he says, because of all this, Gaius, make sure he's taken care of. 
Now, I, I read all of this, and it's important because for me as a pastor and for us as leaders, to let someone speak to the congregation instead of us is a risky deal. We need to vet, if you will, that's a popular word these days, we need to vet those who speak before the church because we're giving them authority, we're giving them the ability to speak into the lives of those that have been entrusted to us as leaders. And so these are some ways that we need to look at. Are, does their walk measure up to their talk? Um, are they approved by other people who also have the Spirit of God? Uh, are they well spoken of amongst the brethren? Are they given to hospitality? Do they meet the First Timothy 3 requirements? Do they meet the requirements for a leader in Titus? Do they measure up to the stature of Jesus, the one who they claim to serve? And so uh, that's verse 12. He says, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Now, I thought I had another slide. Yes, I do. So where does the rubber meet the road here? The question really comes is the word of God divides. It cuts. It shows us where we really measure up. Are we like Gaius and Demetrius? Are we walking in the truth? Are we looking for ways to serve fellow workers in Christ and cheer them on or, or hold up their arms when they need it? Are we still willing to learn from others? Are we giving others reasons to rejoice with our life? Do we have a good testimony among the brothers? Do we have a good testimony among non-believers? Or are we like Diotrephes? Do we prefer control and preeminence rather than receiving the truth? Do we always have to be in the spotlight? How about this one? If someone else succeeds when we failed, are we still able to celebrate them? Are we unwilling to learn something new because it's someone we think we're further along than? Are we willing to put ourselves under the authority of someone else? Do we look like the Jesus we claim to follow? Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. I thought it was interesting as I was reading about Diotrephes. What came to mind was the Savior, the Lord, that we are claiming to follow, said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus said this about himself. He said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And I look at these first two guys, Gaius and Demetrius, they, they came to serve. They came to meet needs. They saw needs and they met needs. Diotrephes came to get his need met to be important. He came to get his need met to... To, to get to talk. And, and that's convicting to me because I have that tendency, if I'm not careful, to get my needs met rather than coming to serve like my Savior. But what's funny is in this same chapter, if you go back to verse 35, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, that statement alone should be a red flag Jesus, I'm here today, and I'm here to ask you to do for me what I ask, you know. And yet Jesus, before the cross, says, 
Not my will, Father, but yours. Submission. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. We don't want the preeminence, but we'd like to have some, right? Maybe you and I would more relate with these two guys. Well, I don't want preeminence. I just want some of the preeminence. I want to be like right under you. I don't want to be on the bottom with the minions. They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. That's weird. Just a second. Everybody plug your ears. Uh, That sometimes fixes it. Did you guys ever watch MASH? You know Radar O'Reilly? He could like run that radio. And sometimes his, like the, all of a sudden it wouldn't work anymore. And he would get on there and he'd go, okay, everybody cover your ears. He'd go, he would whistle in it. And all of a sudden, clear signal. Just fix it. I don't know. Sorry. That's what's in there. That's what you're getting. So that said, here we have, um, where was I? Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. Speaking of death. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said this. This is what he told them. You know that those who are considered rulers or leaders over the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall become your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So to Demetrius, or excuse me, to Diotrephes, Jesus would see uh, the, the character and the way that you're living, it should not be so among you. This way that you're living should not be so among believers. We shall not have the preeminence. We should not grasp for it. Read Philippians 2. Jesus, recognizing that he was fully God and yet did not consider being equal with God something to be grappled with or grasped for, but instead he took on the form of a bond slave. Even in John chapter 13, at the end of the meal that they had, when he did communion, he girded himself at the waist like a a foot washer would, that would be the lowest servant in your house. And he washed poop off of his disciples' feet. There was nothing below Jesus. And yet everything is below Jesus. Do you see that irony? And yet, as his followers, there should be nothing that is below what we are willing to do for the cause of Christ. And yet we serve the one who did the same. And so... As we get ready to take communion, I want, to th- I want you to think about that. That the one whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, not only washed poop off of people's feet, dirty fishermen and tax collectors, but he also died for them, putting his life not on the line, laying it down completely, letting his blood drip out of his body, though he never sinned.
to make a sacrifice for them and for Diotrephes and for Demetrius and Gaius and John and you and I. So that said, he invites us all that are in the faith to come to the table and and celebrate and experience fellowship with him that was brought through him humbling himself. So as we take communion, if you're not familiar with how we take communion, um, some of you may or may not be, we, it, we have open communion. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to be a member here. We don't have membership. Uh, come up and take freely. If you are not a disciple of Jesus, if you've never confessed your sin and repented and asked him to take over lordship of your life, and received his salvation and his forgiveness, then I would encourage you to wait, to pray with somebody here that is a believer, and then afterwards you're welcome to come up at your own and and take communion and have your first fellowship meal with the one who died to save your soul. So that said, just think on these things, and I'm going to lead in a song, and then you guys can come up and get the elements as you see fit.